Chapter Nineteen of Order Number Eleven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Keenan. Order Number Eleven by Caroline Abbott Stanley. Chapter Nineteen: A Working, Buzzing, Stinging Hive. Spring had come. Down in the woods the anemones were holding up tinted cups on slender, wiry stems that swayed with every passing breeze. The violets and bloodroot and adder's tongue and all the rest were waiting only to have the dead leaves pushed away to prove to the world that they were doing their part if nobody was looking on. Virginia, with a restlessness which she never even asked herself to explain, tramped over the creek banks for dogwood and redbuds. They were not altogether pleasant excursions to Virginia. The dogwood and redbuds were so high. They made her think all the time about Gordon and Beverly when she tried to reach them. And she was troubled about Beverly. He was at home now. He couldn't stay out the year. But he seemed preoccupied, and not like the Beverly of old. Then he was always finding some reason for going down to Mr. Whalen's. At least he went down that way. It was no wonder that he was restless. Everybody was, for that matter. And anything was better than for him to go in the other direction, Mrs. Trevilian thought, with a shudder. For at Independence they were recruiting and drilling and doing all sorts of warlike things. Virginia hoped secretly he would join the Greys. It would be glorious to go to war. It was not that that troubled her about Beverly. She and Sally made rebel flags out of scraps of silk. Sally had been strictly loyal until Beverly's return. Then the principles imbibed from her uncle were swept away in an evening. It took just that long for Beverly Trevilian to convert her. Beverly was so handsome, he would look elegant in gray, she confided to Virginia. It was not plain sailing with the flags. They had great difficulty with their stars, which looked more like starfish than celestial luminaries fit to adorn the new nation's banner. They began to hope that no more states would secede. They took one, very straight and plumb as to its crimson bars, but shaky as to the field, to show to Mammy. Nothing was ever quite finished with Virginia till Mammy had inspected it. They had fastened it to a lead pencil for a staff. "'And that's old Virginia's flag,' said Mammy, holding it up and looking at it critically. "'Old Abomarrow, Miss Virginia? Humph. That little thing got de shorns to wave. Ain't you chillin' where to make me an Albemarle flag? You can have this one, said Virginia, eyeing the stars with manifest disapproval. I think I can improve on this. And so Mammy became the possessor of a rebel flag. Little did they dream where it would rest at last. Virginia made one and sent it to Gordon. Pinned to it was the legend, this is the flag that the friends of Virginia fight for. Whether the state or the girl, she did not specify. While Sally and Virginia were busy with their banner-making, Mrs. Trevilian and Miss Nanny were preparing for war of another kind, less glorious, perhaps, than that which filled their minds, but fraught with dangers stern enough if the truth were known, for a brigade of women was to be brought together for a whole day in the spring of 61. They were going to clean the church, 
a useless labor if they had only known it, for within a twelvemonth it would be in ashes. "'Now, Nan,' said Mrs. Trevilian, as she took a last look at the array of buckets, mops, and brooms that Uncle Reuben had mustered for the fray, "'let me give you one last warning. Don't say anything.' "'Sister Betty, I'm not going to say a thing unless old Mrs. McTavish gets after me. But that old woman irritates me beyond measure. She always rubs my fur the wrong way. If you see her coming, I want you to head her off, for I feel it in my bones that if she tackles me I'll say something. What business has she being union? I don't mind it in old man Chandler and Lois and people like that. It's natural for them, I suppose. But old Mrs. McTavish is a Virginian." "'Oh, well,' said Mrs. Trevilian, soothingly. She's from Western Virginia, you know." Apparently Western Virginia did not count. "'I do hope Miss Tiny and Miss Tony won't go,' mused Miss Nanny. "'They're worse than I am.' "'Oh, yes,' assented Mrs. Trevilian. "'They haven't any sense.' "'I never heard anybody carry on as they do,' said Miss Nanny. "'Miss Tiny told me yesterday, when I was there, that their brother Jeems was all they had but they would willingly see him offered up on old Virginia's altar. Have they heard what he is going to do? No. But Miss Tiny nearly took my head off when I asked her the same thing. Do, she said, in her most dignified manner. The one, you know, that makes you feel that you could crawl through the eye of a needle and would like to. My dear, he is a Virginian. That is sufficient. But Miss Tony told me that they sent every day to the office for the letter. I believe it would kill them if he didn't go with the South. But, of course, he will." "'I'm not so sure of that,' said Colonel Trevilian, looking up from the St. Louis Republican. "'It will depend entirely on how it strikes him. I went to school with Jeems Bascom. He is as hard-headed as they are.' As they were on their way to the church, Mrs. Whalen's rockaway drove up beside them. "'I'm hurrying on,' she said. "'But I must stop to tell you something, Mrs. Trevilian. Did you know you had offended Mrs. Tigerman very much by not giving her a special invitation to come today? Well, why should I? It's not my party. And she was in church when the notice was given out. I saw her. Yes, she was. But she heard of your sending word to Mrs. Pascoe and myself, and one or two others, who were not there. And she feels dreadfully aggrieved that she did not have a special invitation. Her feelings are so hurt. She says she wouldn't think of coming now. "'It's a good thing,' remarked Miss Nanny, while Mrs. Trevilian looked quite disturbed. "'Anybody that has such fragile feelings as that had better put them on the top shelf out of the way and stay at home to watch them. Around with a dozen other women is no place for them, certainly. Did you ever see such people, Mrs. Whalen?' "'Never. They stand with a chip on their shoulder all the time, both of them. He is as bad as she is.' "'And people that are looking out for slights always find them,' said Mrs. Trevilian. "'I've noticed that.' And Mrs. Whalen, assenting heartily, drove on. It was on a Saturday, the 11th of May, that the Bucket Brigade met at Hickory Grove Church. A peaceful army enough, for they all went to work as if they were dumb. Every woman was on her guard, for everyone knew that she held within her breast a powder magazine that would explode the moment the spark was struck. That church was soon in the midst of an upheaval. 
Each woman had brought a negro woman with her, and several had brought men. By noon the strips of carpeting from the pews made the grove look like a bannered hall. The spittoons were out sunning, and the floor was drinking in soap suds. Nobody had talked, everybody had worked, and peace reigned. They had their dinner in the grove. Miss Nanny waited till Mrs. McTavish was seated, and then sat down on the other side. "'Mrs. Trevelyan, I see Beverly is back,' said Mrs. Whalen. "'Isn't that unexpected?' "'No, not exactly. We thought it best for him to come. Things are so unsettled.' "'My, I should say so!' broke in Mrs. McTavish, as she reached for a pickle. "'I was telling him yesterday that I was glad all ourn was girls. It seems like, if this war goes on, and dear knows it looks like it was going to, that everybody will be uneasy that's got boys.' "'Yes,' said Mrs. Trevelyan, gently. "'Yes.' She had been bearing that load for weary months. "'Mrs. Lay, are your peas ready to stick yet?' "'I don't see how anybody can gabble about peas and such like when the country is in the condition it's in,' Mrs. McTavish said in an indignant aside to Mrs. Devereux. She had opened the subject purposely. "'I reckon it's better for us to keep the conversation on peas than war,' returned that lady. It doesn't do for women to talk, Mrs. McTavish. Well, there's one thing I'm going to ask Miss Nanny Trevilian before I get away from here. I heard she said— Oh, I wouldn't try to ferret out reports, Mrs. McTavish. You can hear anything these days. They were talking in pairs around the tablecloth, when one of those horrible, unexpected pauses that sometimes fall upon a company, as if by concerted action, descended to Mrs. Whalen's confusion. You know they've taken the St. Louis arsenal, she was saying in a low tone. It sounded preternaturally distinct. Mrs. Lay threw herself hastily into the breach. Mrs. Dyson, how is your meat keeping this year? She had forgotten in her haste that this was a winter subject of conversation. And so they dodged the thing that absorbed them all. For even as they talked of household matters and flowers, and green things growing, they were thinking of war and their boys. "'Miss Nanny,' began Mrs. McTavish, as the pie was started around, "'I've been laying off to ask you about something I heard you said.' Miss Nanny rose. "'I haven't time to talk about anything now, Mrs. McTavish. I'm going at that pulpit right away. Sister Betty, save me some of that ribbon cake to eat on the way home.' But when they got back to the church, they found their political affinities and their tongues. Scattering out in twos and threes, a soft babble arose. They had stood it as long as they could. If the recording angel had flitted from one group to another, he would have heard fragments that told the story of where their interest was. "'You know the governor has called for troops,' said Mrs. Swamscott, taking a fresh piece of paper for the window she was polishing. She spoke guardedly and her companion lowered her tone in reply, for Mrs. Whalen was passing just then. "'Mrs. Whalen,' called Mrs. Swamscott from her elevation, "'I was just saying to Miss Marthy that it did seem like the men might refrain from tobacco in the house of the Lord.' "'Well, now, it does so,' returned Mrs. Whalen, as her woman deposited the spittoon in the pew whence it had been removed. Then they discussed the frailties of the other sex with great unction, 
for that was perfectly safe neutral ground on which there was no danger of disagreement. I thought I wouldn't let her think we were talking about her, remarked Mrs. Swamscott later to Miss Marthy. Mrs. Whalen is a mighty clever woman, if they are union. And so is he, agreed Miss Marthy, not noticing the sex complications in which she was involving the gentleman in question. On her knees, where she had dropped to straighten the strip of carpet that Mrs. Pascoe was tacking, Mrs. Trevilian was saying, No, I'm afraid we can't keep him. It is the Independence Grays he wants to go with. She had said it a good many times before, on bended knees, with no ear to listen but the infinite. "'I know just how you feel,' sighed Mrs. Pascoe. "'John went yesterday.' Up in the pulpit, where they were dusting and placing the haircloth sofa and the chairs that flanked it on either side, Miss Nanny's energetic whisper was heard. "'Of course they have a right to secede. Why, Brother William says—' The angel caught the rest. They were nearly through when Mr. Swamscott appeared in the doorway. He had been over to Cass County and stopped in on his way home. He had a paper in his hand and was laboring under great excitement. "'Have you all heard the news?' "'No. What is it?' asked Miss Nanny, speaking for the company. "'They've taken Camp Jackson.' "'What? Camp Jackson? Who has?' "'Captain Lyon. The boys are all prisoners of war now.' His news was like fire to tow. Some of those prisoners were from Jackson County. From all quarters of the state, young men had gone to that encampment to learn something of the art of war under General Frost. And they were captured, actually made prisoners of war, by a Yankee captain. "'There's more to it than that,' said Mr. Swamscott. As they were going back to the city with the prisoners, they halted them near Olive Street and kept them waiting for several hours.' Of course a big crowd gathered—men, women, and children—and it seems that the crowd was jeering at the troops and calling them blackguards in derision. You know, one of the German companies calls itself Die Schwarze Garde, and it wasn't very hard to make Dutch blackguards out of that. Well, nobody seems to know just how it happened, but the Dutch began firing on the people. The helpless unarmed people? Was anybody hurt? Hurt? I tell you, they just mowed them down. One that they killed was a baby in arms. The women broke into horrified ejaculations. Oh, the wretches! cried Miss Nanny. But what can you expect when a foreign foe is permitted to invade the state? I wonder what Frank Blair thinks now of his home guards. This is awful, breathed Mrs. Lay. Do you think it is possible it has been exaggerated, Mr. Swamscott? I'm afraid not, Mrs. Lay. It comes pretty straight. The Republican says the wounded and dying made that field look like a battleground. How did the people take it? asked Miss Nanny. Weren't they wild? The Black Dutch. Mr. Swamscott read on. It is impossible to describe the intense exhibition of feeling manifested last evening. The streets were thronged. Imprecations loud and long were hurled into the darkening air. The drinking saloons and other resorts were closed simultaneously at dark, and the windows of dwellings were fastened, for fear of a general riot. The offices of the Missouri Democrat and the Anzeiger des Vestens were placed under guard for protection. "'That old Dutch paper ought to be razed to the ground,' exclaimed Miss Nanny, with flashing eyes. 
Missouri has warmed a viper in her breast that is ready now to sting her. There was no reply to this. Nobody was ready just then to defend the Dutch, as the Germans were universally called. Undoubtedly, this act at the inception of the war had much to do with the very cordial detestation in which they were afterward held. Oh, oh, cried Miss Nanny, why didn't they pass that bill to arm the state? They've passed it now, Miss Nanny. They were considering it yesterday when the news came of the capture. The Union men were fighting it just as hard as they could when the governor came in and told them that the camp was captured and the state troops held as prisoners of war. That was enough. Their opposition was gone. In fifteen minutes that bill had passed both houses and was ready for the governor's signature. "'Isn't that glorious?' cried Miss Nanny, her good resolutions cast to the winds. "'We'll get Missouri yet, Mr. Swamscott.' "'Nan!' But Miss Nanny was past holding in now. "'And that isn't all,' continued Mr. Swamscott. "'This happened yesterday, you know. The paper says that at midnight all Jefferson City was roused by the ringing of the church bells. The legislature came hurriedly together, and the governor notified them that he had just been informed of the approach of two of Blair's regiments to capture the capital. Well, sir, they just went wild. An act was rushed through both houses, authorizing the governor to take such measures as he might deem necessary to repel invasion or put down rebellion. And, he added in triumph, if you'll believe me, they appropriated thirty thousand dollars to be used for that purpose. Oh, breathed Miss Nanny, if they had only done it before. Mr. Swamscott folded his paper and put it in his pocket. Mrs. Trevilian, you'd better be seeing after Beverly. I know I've got to chain Isaac. It was a good thing that Hickory Grove Church was nearing completion, for interest in the Lord's house had suddenly abated. They were all eager to get home and tell the news. Uncle Reuben was loading up, and Miss Nanny getting her things together, when Mrs. McTavish approached. She was going to have that out if the state had gone to smash. "'Miss Nanny,' she began. The beleaguered lady turned upon her. "'Well, what is it?' The tone was uncompromising. Miss Nanny was ready for anything now. The ladies all continued their preparations for departure, but with one ear turned toward the combatants. "'I heard you said something about me.' "'You did? What did you hear?' "'I heard you said there wa'n't nobody from Virginia but the poor tackies in the mountains that was Union.' A smile rippled over the faces looking into their baskets. "'I don't doubt she said it,' whispered Mrs. Swamscott to Mrs. Devereux. "'Did you hear it from good authority?' "'Yes, am I did.' "'Well,' said Miss Nanny, composedly, I don't know whether I said it or not. It sounds very much like me. But I'll just tell you now, Mrs. McTavish, that I don't hold myself responsible one day for what I said the day before. And with this, the irate lady of Caledonian name and Hibernian proclivities was forced to be content. End of chapter 19 Recording by Brian Keenan